0: You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 29th of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. from London this is the globalist with me Emma Nelson a very warm welcome to the program coming up.
1: Today we had the opportunity
2: to reiterate our position not just as one country Albania but just as a collective
0: The Albanian Prime Minister offers support to Ukraine, but what can the Balkans do to help Kiev that others cannot? Also coming up, the US issues a warning after Hawaii's neighbour Kiribati hires police officers in from China. We'll examine Beijing and Washington's tussle for influence in the Pacific. Japan's birth rate continues to drop. What can reverse it? Our Tokyo bureau chief will have the analysis. And...
3: It's something that's been out there for a long time and comfortably in the fringe. And I think people felt like they didn't need to really respond to it or give it air because it was so fringe, but it certainly has infiltrated the mainstream.
0: We look at the rise of Christian nationalism in the US. Today's paper review will come from our Zurich Bureau. We'll enjoy the latest tech news and we'll find out why the Arab Peninsula could be the next big place for fine wine. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. Before we begin, a look at what else is happening in today's news. A judge in Illinois has ruled that Donald Trump cannot stand in the US state's presidential primary ballot. Fumio Kishida has become the first sitting Japanese prime minister to appear before a parliamentary ethics committee. And more than 50 journalists have sent an open letter calling on Israel and Egypt to provide free and unfettered access to Gaza for all foreign media. Stay tuned to Monaco Radio throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, Albania played host to the to Volodymyr Zelensky yesterday as he sought more support against Russia. The Ukrainian president promoted the idea of joint arms production at a two-day summit of southeastern European countries. So how can the Balkans help Kiev in ways that other nations cannot? Well, to tell us more, I'm joined now by Monocle's Balkans correspondent, Guy Delaney. A very good morning to you, Guy.
4: Good morning, Emma.
0: So what was Zelensky trying to achieve here?
4: Well, from his speech, what appeared he most desired was ammunition. And uh, he, he made it clear that, that supplies of ammunition were a big issue for Ukrainian forces in terms of uh, keeping Russian forces at bay and also pushing them back from any gains that they'd made. So he's asking more or less for countries in the Balkans. And there were a couple of which weren't just in the Western Balkans at this summit. So we, we also had Croatia was there, Moldova was there, Bulgaria was there. Um, he was asking them if they could form a a joint forum, as he put it, with Ukraine's defence companies uh, to work out how they could co-produce ammunition. And he he reckons that this forum could take place in one of the countries in this region or in Kyiv or anywhere of uh, the countries choosing, anywhere that would suit people in order that they could get their defence companies together and work out how they could best help the Ukrainian effort.
0: So what position are countries like Albania, et cetera, in to actually do this?
4: Well, the interesting thing, of course, about the Western Balkans is they they do know a lot about producing arms and not necessarily to the the levels, of course, of countries like the United States or the United Kingdom, which have gone into very um, high tech and progressive areas of defence. But in terms of what Ukraine needs the Western Balkans has probably got quite a lot of it. I mean, there's a big legacy defence industry in this region from both times of Yugoslavia, and of course, the times when um, Albania was a communist dictatorship uh, ruled by Enver Hoxha. So there's a lot around that's going to be useful uh, to Ukraine. The interesting factor is, of course, the largest defense industry in the region is Serbia's. And, of course, Serbia is the one country in the region which hasn't imposed sanctions on Russia, um, which uh, is is not really able directly to do something like sell arms to Ukraine. And that's slightly problematic because what Serbia has got would be very, very useful to Ukraine indeed. I mean, just to give you an idea, there are more than 200 defense companies in Serbia, uh, arms are one of its biggest exports and it produces, you know, just in terms of guns, 500 million of those a year uh, alone. So clearly there's capacity in Western Balkans to provide the basics that, that, that Ukraine says it needs. But it's a question of finding a, a politically and diplomatically acceptable way of doing so, perhaps.
0: Indeed, because Serbia has a close relationship to Moscow, as you've just mentioned um, Nonetheless, there are reports that somehow some of these 500 million guns have ended up in Ukrainian hands.
4: Absolutely. I mean, this is the thing with ammunition. When when it's pictured on on battlefront and in positions, of course, there's all sorts of uh, uh, photographs and video footage of Ukrainian forces in action, and people have been seeing that there are markings on ammunition which indicate they've been made by some of uh, Serbia's defence industry companies. So how have they ended up in Ukrainian hands if uh, Serbia isn't directly exporting Uh, to uh, Ukraine. Well, the answer is they're going through third parties and the the, the cover for this was was somewhat blown two years ago when there was a crash in Greece of of a plane, a Ukrainian registered plane, uh, which was packed full of uh, Serbian munitions and that crashed in Greece. Now the official story was these munitions were were bound for Bangladesh, not for Ukraine. Uh, but then the Pentagon uh, made a report which was leaked, praising Serbia for agreeing to supply arms to Ukraine. So th- this has been officially denied by Serbia, of course. Uh, but, you know, there's a slightly equivocal line from from Serbia's defence minister, which came out, came out around the time of all of this in the Pentagon report, saying that... Uh, Weaponry and ordnance from Serbia could magically appear in the conflict, but that has absolutely nothing to do with Serbia.
0: So Serbia has a problem, but other countries in the Balkans are in a, in a more transparent position to help.
4: Absolutely. I mean, the if we're talking about ex-Yugoslavia, Bosnia and Croatia both have significant uh, arms industry companies. Um, and of course, Albania's Prime Minister, Edi Rama, who we heard at the top of the programme there, was hosting this summit. And he's been positively enthusiastic about the prospect of providing more support to Ukraine. Now, if you look at what it's done already, it's on the list of countries which have been supplying equipment and ammunition uh, to Ukraine. Uh, He's, Mr. Rama, very much up for Mr. Zelensky's proposal for co-production. And he made some points at the summit which i think will probably have resonated with most of the the governments in the region most of the leaders who were at this summit saying that it was in their best interests to increase support for ukraine not just because of recent memories of you know, the, the the ruinous conflicts of the 1990s in the western balkans but also because of the strong possibility that if russia is successful in ukraine then the Western Balkans might be next on its list of places to to meddle in and Mr Rama was Keen that, you know, the tensions in the Western Balkans, A, weren't uh, going to spill over into conflict and that B, people used this opportunity to provide Ukraine with the munitions they needed to work to weaken Russia's ability to to meddle in the Western Balkans.
0: One wonders, um, Guy, a little bit why this kind of meeting and gathering and and concerted effort hasn't been considered before in, in such an obvious way, given the fact that we are now two years into the Russian invasion of Ukraine.
3: Well,
4: I think if you need to look at what the what the environment is at the moment, and what the what the mood music has been over the past few weeks. In terms of support from the United States and, to a degree, from Europe, Ukraine's been struggling, and so perhaps you know, there are, I think, a couple of elements to this. One, it's a practical matter um, that the countries in the Western Balkans can produce. Uh, munitions and, and weapons that are useful to Ukraine and, and indeed if you, if you think about what the what the forces in these countries have I mean we've seen for example even here in Slovenia Slovenia sent tanks to to Ukraine because uh, they're, they're Soviet era uh, weapons and, and the Ukrainian uh, military are very familiar with them uh, are capable of operating them capable of uh, repairing them the, the countries in this region are very useful in, in those sort of terms. But in another way, it could be a diplomatic effort, couldn't it, that uh, you know, Ukraine is saying, look, um, if the Western Balkans are willing to help us, why isn't the United States, why aren't more European countries making bigger efforts to, to, to support us? If these smaller, much smaller countries in, in this region are willing uh, to put themselves on the line for Ukraine? Why not the, the bigger and stronger uh, people who say they are, who, who claim to be our supporters?
0: And how much will this be uh, on the agenda when uh, later today we have a second meeting, but this is meetings of the, the Balkans uh, leaders staying on to talk to the EU?
4: So we've got a bit of a twofer in Tirana, Emma. Uh, so we had the, the, the Ukraine summit yesterday, and today it's a, an EU-Western Balkans summit. And Ursula von der Leyen, European Commission President, is there. I don't think they'll be talking so much about Ukraine. That was very much what was going on yesterday with a set piece of, of having Volodymyr Zelensky um, in the country and addressing uh, the leaders from the region. Uh, but what they'll be talking about is the latest EU plan uh, for helping the Western Balkans countries become more harmonised with the European Union. Now, I've been in this region long enough now to have seen a few of these plans come and go, so I'm slightly sceptical about it, I have to tell you, Emma, but theoretically... Uh, There's there's tens of billions of euros available for countries in the Western Balkans uh, to get themselves more up to a standard uh, with the European Union countries and place themselves in better position um, for accession to the European Union. Uh, But you you can look at the the, the figures, Uh, there was one chart I saw just yesterday which suggested it would take at the current pace 70 years, that's seven zero years for countries in the Western Balkans to catch up to the economic standards of countries which are already in the European Union. Um, So there's going to have to be a a serious effort from Brussels, not just nice words about our latest plan to give you a few billion quid.
0: Guy Delauny, thank you as ever for joining us on The Globalist. You're listening to Monocle Radio. It's uh, nearly 7.12 here in London and the US has issued a warning to Pacific Island nations after Chinese police have reported started work on the remote atoll island of Kiribati, a neighbour of Hawaii. Kiribati's acting police commissioner says the Chinese officers are working with local forces in community policing and creating a crime database programme. Beijing has been pushing to expand security ties in the Pacific Islands as part of an intense rivalry with the US and to explore this further, I'm delighted to say that Steve. Steve Tsang, director of the China Institute at SOAS University of London, uh, joins me on the line. A very good morning to you, Steve.
5: Good morning, Emma.
0: Uh, So why were the Chinese police called in to Kiribati?
5: Well, it was a package deal, I think, when um, Kiribati agreed to switch recognition of Taiwan to China, that the Chinese were providing a whole lot of development assistance, and the Chinese were offering uh, assistance in all sorts of ways. And as a relatively poor country, it was advantageous for them to do that. And obviously, they also have some problems with uh, law and security there as well. And therefore, the Chinese assistance, including not only the presence of Chinese officers, but with surveillance and other capacity would be to them.
0: What can Beijing offer that the United States can't, or is it just much quicker off the mark?
5: Well, the United States, I don't think, have been particularly active in engaging with them effectively, and they are not really seeing the kind of challenge that the Chinese were posing until relatively recently and taking it more seriously but by which time, of course, the Chinese have a foothold. And the Chinese are very good in terms of how they engage with leaders of countries, which um, means that uh, leaders of those countries can get much better personal support from the Chinese.
0: Um, How worried are the United States about this?
5: Well, the Americans are concerned. I think the expansion of Chinese influence in the Pacific Pacific Islands is something which the Americans are not happy about. I mean, we're talking about uh, Places that historically since the Second World War have been under American influence. I mean a lot of those places were under Japanese occupation and the American fought hard to Liberate them from the Japanese during the Second World War. So there was a kind of expectations. These were uh, American uh, areas of influence And so they are not happy with that. And with the competition with the Chinese across the board and the concern of Chinese extending their influence, trying to push the American influence out of the Pacific, they would be a lot more worried now.
0: Um, We've heard uh, in the last hour actually from the Australian Pacific Minister Pat Conroy saying there should be no role for China in policing the Pacific Islands and Australia will train more security forces to fill gaps. Uh, This is obviously following the the reports that Chinese police are working in in, in Kiribati. Um, You've mentioned the problems that this causes for the United States but if you are Australia how much is this a threat?
5: Well I think Australians would be much more concerned than the Americans uh, um, because the Australians have effectively taken over from the Americans as the main, if you like, uh, Western democratic country in the regions that uh, engage with those Pacific Islands. And therefore, the presence of the Chinese, when we are talking about police, it is a kind of security personnel, would make the Australians uncomfortable. And the Australians are already seeing that. The regional security is being affected by the uh, uh, assertiveness of China in the region. The fact that the the Australians were keen to join AUKUS, the submarine package deal with the Americans and the uh, British, reflects how seriously they are looking at the rise of Chinese influence and potentially a Chinese threat to Australia might pose. And therefore, extension of Chinese influence into the South Pacific, the if you like, front yard or backyard of, of Australia, is something that they are not comfortable with.
0: What can Australia persuade um, other nations to do, though? I mean, they they obviously have this uh, growing security threat that you just mentioned, but. Um, Australia now wants to see police from Papua New Guinea, Fiji and other Pacific nations um, look after their own security. They want it to more be more homegrown. How easy is that going to be when the influence from China is so great?
5: Well, it is not quite as easy because what we in effect is seeing is a kind of beauty contest between China and the uh, Western democracies. And here when we are looking at beauty contests. we have to bear in mind, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. We are not necessarily more beautiful in their eyes because we are more democratic and human rights respecting. Uh, the Chinese can be more beautiful when they offer terms which will be more agreeable, indeed positively uh, like by leaders of small countries which are not necessarily perfect democracies.
0: Let's move to Tuvalu, also uh, one of the Pacific Island nations. Um, They have recently uh, elected a new prime minister. Um, They still have a very strong relationship with Taiwan, don't they? They are one of the few um, nations on earth which recognises Taiwan. What problems does this cause for Tuvalu?
5: Well, it means that Tuvalu is a... A country that is being very actively cultivated by Chinese diplomacy uh, with a view of persuading Tuvalu to switch recognition from Taiwan to China in the run-ups to Taiwan's change of uh, leadership in May, when a new DPP president will take office in Taiwan, who is somebody that the Chinese government strongly dislike. So they would want to send a signal to Taiwan and to the world that they can still punish Taiwan. So I think Tuvalu would be one of those countries potentially being engaged by the Chinese.
0: And what is the likelihood of that happening, Steve?
5: Well, the irony with these sort of things is that um, allies or former allies of Taiwan generally says that our relationship with Taiwan is rock-solid until it isn't. A lot of it really will depend on the kind of terms the Chinese are willing to offer. And since we're talking about really quite small countries, it is relatively cheap for the Chinese to buy uh, an airline from Taiwan. And Taiwan has a policy of no longer playing dollar diplomacy to counter China's dollar diplomacy. So the risk is, I think, a real one. Um, I can't put a percentage to uh, the likelihood of it happening between now and May. But I think this is a prospect that we should not ignore.
0: Steve Tang, thank you as ever for joining us on Monaco Radio. Still to come on today's programme. Why Merlot and others are having a moment in the Middle East. Stay with us.
6: UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today.
7: To find out how we could help
2: you,
6: contact us at ubs.com.
0: now to look at today's newspapers. Joining us from Dufourstrasse 90 in Zurich is Juliet Lindley. A very good morning to Juliet. How is Zurich looking this morning?
7: Very good morning to you, Emma. Zurich is actually looking dry, pretty warm for the season. And we're all very excited to be looking at the Swiss and international papers from um, D9.
0: I'm sure we are excited. And after giving us that rather marvellous weather forecast... <laughs> um, <laughs> um, Tell us what is in the international papers from D90 this morning.
7: I'm going to start with the Swiss papers and Swiss television, actually. Why don't we just start off since that is our host country? And I'm looking at suspected sanction dodging here, Emma, specifically how Swiss exports to Russia appear to have been suspiciously rerouted to neighbouring countries. No names of companies mentioned, don't know the nature of the goods, but in the aftermath of the invasion of Ukraine in 2022, Swiss Info and Swiss Television are reporting that the subsequent sanctions on Moscow, um, according to researchers at St. Gallen University, were circumvented and there was a suspicious uptick in trade with countries close to Russia on behalf of certain Swiss companies. Now, admittedly, uh, trade with the likes of Kazakhstan, Armenia or Georgia was not forbidden. But given the timing, i.e. from the moment the Swiss adopted the EU sanctions, there's been a definite suspicion of circumvention of trade restrictions, the researchers are saying, because um, until then, Swiss trade with Astana Yerevan, and Tbilisi had never exactly been enormous, Emma. So, take Armenia, for instance. Swiss exports to Armenia more than tripled in the first year after the invasion, year on year. And at the same time, exports from Armenia to Russia jumped by nearly 200%. Now, bear in mind that because the countries in question are relatively small, extraordinary shifts in Swiss trade flows with them are far more noticeable than they would be perhaps with larger countries. Of course, speaking of larger countries, you know, using... Uh, uh, third countries to forward goods under the radar is nothing new. And larger countries like China and Turkey are also under the microscope. But of course, the geographical proximity plays a role. And the Swiss authorities are saying that they are keen to leave no stone unturned on this matter. So Switzerland's State Secretariat for Economic Affairs, Emma Secco, as it's known, is telling Swiss TV that is actively investigating this and that it will, of course, punish offenders.
0: Indeed, it's, it's quite difficult though, isn't it? Because we, we mentioned that we, we don't know what's being sent because obviously this is, this is incredibly uh, difficult to trace. Um, some pharmaceutical products aren't sanctioned, um, are they? So they're being sent to Russia and, yeah. and those exports have been um, absolutely skyrocketing. But yeah. what can the government do about it? Because if you are exporting to non-sanctioned countries, in theory, this is all fine.
7: That's the thing. You've really got to be able to trace what is happening once they reach the third country and then where they go on from there. But just for a little perspective, Emma, in this case, the volume of exports to these countries from Switzerland is relatively small. It accounts for less than a percentage of total Swiss exports, for there's some perspective for us on that.
0: Right. Let's move to another story. You spotted something in The New York Times about energy.
7: So, Emma, this is an opinion piece, an op ed that is all about the Jevons paradox. I'm sure you know all about that. It's named for the 19th century English economist William Stanley Jevons, who observed that his country's consumption of coal rose rather than dropped as steam engines became ever more efficient because. Britain's appetite for coal spiked. Now, the modern day comparison that this author makes is with LED lights, for instance. They were invented in Japan in the nineties. The hope at the time was that they'd greatly cut electricity consumption and thereby, of course, help the planet. But the amount of electricity we use today is actually more or less the same as it was in 2010. And in other words, as technology has advanced, we've become better at wasting energy. So all around us, we can see instances of this, much to the despair of climate activists. And oil companies use it as an excuse to keep on drilling. So, for example, the servers that are running the Internet, Emma, they use less power proportionally than in the past. But our use has skyrocketed or take heating. So research shows that when people install home insulation, their overall heating energy demand ramped up. Why? Because they were actually turning up their thermostat and enjoying warmer toast your living room. So the good news, however, is that in some cases, the efficiency gains are so great that our appetite for more cannot completely negate them. So for instance, today's car engines require so little fuel compared to predecessors that even though Americans now drive longer distances in heavier cars, their gas consumption has indeed fallen. In other words, we've in some ways moved beyond Jevons' steam engines. And as countries get richer, we're seeing less of the rebound effect. But the paradox is still sort of hard hardwired in us, isn't it? So what's the solution, Emma? Well, taxes that constrain our energy use or hard to implement global carbon tax Or simply perhaps just ensuring that our energy is so clean, that it's so clean that it becomes almost irrelevant just how much you use it. And then perhaps uh, we will have defeated this paradox.
0: This is, I mean, as you say, in the article says, in the bad news is that the Jevons paradox is absolutely hardwired into it. Isn't that interesting? But there's also that feeling of like, you must stop doing something. And I think with the green, the, the, the green transition is, Always held back by the fact that people are not going to stop wanting to warm their houses and and light their lights and jump on planes. Um, I just wonder how we're going to get out of this, because the article does suggest that, doesn't it? That you have to be as green as you can, but we're going to have to be pretty green to stop us from doing all the things that we love doing.
7: Pretty green. And is it the nanny stage is going to have to impose us, make us pay? for it. Oh, you love anymore. a nanny state, don't you? I <laughs> Adore nanny
0: state. Where did that come from? When did I say I love nanny states? <laughs> um, right, what, what else have we got? Um, it what is, date is it today? Well, it's the 29th of February 2024. And before we keep coming on air, I was wondering if I'd ever presented a globalist on the 29th of February. I'll have to look back in the in the back catalogue. But what's quite delightful is that the, the coverage this year is seems to be no longer focused on whether women are allowed to ask a man to marry <laughs> (laughs) marry Marry them today, because obviously, hopefully, times have moved on slightly. There's there's some good stuff out there with some good information.
7: Yeah, so let's look at this once every four years phenomenon. So why do we have leap years? Well, our 365-day calendar is based on the Earth revolving around the sun, but it actually takes 365.242 days to complete the circuit. I'm going to write that
0: down. (laughs) You've
7: got to keep track of this. Stay with me. Hence the need for February to have an extra day every four years. But... And here's another but, the leap day actually overcompensates. So in years that are divisible by 100, stay with me, like 1700, 1800 and 1900, there was no February 29th. I'm sure you don't remember that because we were not around, but by the way, years that are divisible by 100 and 400, like the year 2000, well, they do get a leap year. Bottom line, if we didn't have leap years, what would happen? Well, after a few hundred years, we'd have summer in November. Christmas in the summer. Seasons wouldn't align with the sun and moon. So who came up with the leap year concept? Well, no one specifically created it or invented it. It kind of evolved. The concept evolved. But already in ancient Rome, Emma Julius Caesar was aware of, quote, major seasonal drift. That's what the experts like to call it, drift. And he'd tried to solve the drift by adding months and introducing the Julian calendar. That was way back in 46 BC, which was purely solar and counted one year at... 365.25 days and so once every four years an extra day was tagged on Emma, you still with me? No. Well no 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 (laughs) (laughs) I'm not gonna go over this all
0: again. But I'm I'm (laughs) clinging on. on. The thing that I find amazing about that is when did they work all this stuff out again? Just repeat it, because this is this is way before we had been
7: around since forever, since ancient Rome. But guess what? What's the calendar that we use today? The Gregorian calendar, right? So your valiance. Vatican correspondent is going to tell you that that happened when Pope Gregory the 13th in the 16th century decided to calibrate the calendar further. Why? Because he wanted Easter and Pentecost not to coincide with pagan festivals. It's always religion at the end of the day. And so he created the Gregorian calendar, and that's the one that we use today. Talk about leap of faith, right? Maybe that's where the term comes from.
0: Julia, thank you so much for that. I think this is the moment when podcasts become massively relevant because we can go back and listen back to that with a pen and pencil. Juliet Linley, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Dufourstrasse 90 in Zurich. You're listening to The List with me, Emma Nelson. The time here in London is 7.30 on a leap year day. Uh, look now at the latest headlines. A judge in Illinois has ruled that Donald Trump cannot stand in the U.S. state's presidential primary ballot. Cook County Circuit Judge Tracy Porter made the ruling because of Mr. Trump's role in the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol in January 2021. She's delayed her ruling from taking effect, however, in light of an expected appeal by the former U.S. president. Fumio Kishida has become the first sitting Japanese Prime Minister to appear before a Parliamentary Ethics Committee. The hearings focus on how some factions within Mr. Kishida's party failed to report hundreds of millions of yen from fundraising parties. More than 50 journalists have sent an open letter calling on Israel and Egypt to provide free and unfettered access to Gaza for all foreign media. In the letter, the correspondents write that foreign reporters are still being denied access to the territory outside of the rare and escorted trips with the Israeli military. And the wife of the Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny has said his funeral will take place tomorrow, but she's not sure if it'll pass off peacefully. Mr Navalny died in an Arctic penal colony nearly two weeks ago. Supporters say he was killed on the orders of President Putin. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Now, the Japanese government has warned that the next six years will be crucial if the country is to solve its problem of a falling birth rate. Authorities say they'll be taking what they call unprecedented steps to reverse the trend. But will they succeed? Well, to tell us more, I'm joined now by Fiona Wilson, who's Monocle's Tokyo Bureau Chief. Good afternoon, Fiona. Hi, Emma. Good to have
1: you with us. So just explain to us, I mean, how fast is the birth rate falling in Japan? Well, I mean, this is a subject that comes up quite a lot, and I feel we've certainly talked about it. But Yes, we have hit another low. That seems to be the case every year. But uh, they just released some uh, figures about the number of babies born in Japan, 758,631 to be precise. And it's the lowest since uh, records started in 1899. So obviously, bad week for demographics in in this part of the world.
0: Tell us a little bit more about how that bears out on um, Japanese culture and life? I mean, do you talk a lot about it? Or do you notice that that friends and families aren't having children and people feel it looks and feels a little bit older? Or have these these not been felt yet?
1: Well, curiously, I seem to be surrounded by a lot of um, friends, Japanese friends, who are, who are having a lot of children. So I'm always quite intrigued by these stories. But yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely very bad news for the, uh, for the population. I mean, it, just broadly that, you know, you've got a population of 125 million. They think it'll drop by about, a third uh, by twenty seventy to uh, eighty seven million so you can imagine all the repercussions you don 't have enough people there's not enough of a tax base but tax base to support huge numbers of uh, pensioners who are living longer than ever you know they 're better looked after they 're healthier so you 've got this sort of big pyramid effect um, yeah so so there 's a lot of talk about it, and you know Fumio Kishida is trying to pass this uh Budget at the moment, which will include a huge um, amount of money to encourage people to have children, extra childcare, encouraging paternity leave, um, everything. The government is throwing everything at it. I
0: mean, these are the un- unprecedented steps that the that the government is talking about. I mean, what are they offering exactly? I mean, w- what would persuade a, a Japanese couple to to embark upon um, a life of parenthood if all the the suggest all the signs suggest it's probably not a good idea?
1: Yeah, it's such an interesting one, isn't it? Because I certainly think if you look at the government legislation, you know, they've done what they can to extend paternity leave. They're they're trying, you know, Shinzo Abe, this has been going on for 20 years of trying to give people more money, free childcare at a young age. You know, I think the problem is it's, it's, it's beyond just having children. One of the big problems is that people aren't getting married so much. And most children are born in wedlock in Japan. So if people aren't getting married, you're going to have fewer children. And, it, you know, COVID exacerbated this trend. And that's another statistic that just came out. Fewer than 500,000 people got married last year. Now, that is, hasn't been as low as that, you know, since 1933, when the population was much, much smaller. So obviously it's, it's really linked. People are not getting married. They feel they haven't got the money to do it. A lot of women are saying, you know, if they have babies, they'll never get their careers back. So they're, they're choosing not to get married and, and you know, not just women, men, too. So I think you need to look before you get to the children. A lot of people are now saying, yeah, great to help with childcare. You need to do what you can to incentivize people to get married, um, because socially, that's still the way people prefer to have babies in Japan.
0: So what's been the reaction to these Um unprecedented steps being being announced. I mean you you notice you know you mentioned there the the fact that an awful lot needs to change before people are going to have more children.
3: Yeah,
1: I mean you know I think people welcome all these changes but I think it's such a the, the backdrop is much bigger and I noticed an editorial in the Mainichi big broadsheet newspaper here which said sorry you know the government great you're doing this but you are slightly missing the point which is that most young people feel their unemployed their employment situation is still quite unstable and statistically if people feel employment is isn't stable they're not likely to settle marry have children so it's it's what i was just saying it really i think a lot of people feel japan has to go a bit further back and yeah, great to see all this childcare support, which is absolutely essential. And many people will say it's just it's just very expensive to have children in Japan. Um,
0: not just that. it isn't just Japan's problem as well, is it? South Korea's problem is even worse.
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, South Korea is the most expensive place to have children in the world, statistically. So they've got a worse problem. They, they've just uh, revealed their, their birth rate, which is a historic low. I mean, you know. Their their population situation is dire, lowest fertility rate in the world, 0.72, you know, and you need 2.1 to replicate society. So you can see where South Korea is in a, you know, they're calling it a national emergency. And the South Korean president, um, Yun, said, look, this is a structural problem now. We've thrown a lot of money at it, like Japan. They've really put money into it. But you've got a very, very well-educated population of women who are saying, hang on, what's the point in this great education and having babies, if we could then can't get back into work, you know, South Korea has the largest uh, gender pay gap in the world, in the OECD world, sorry. And, you know, there's women are saying not not sure we want to get married and, and rather like Japan Marriage is still seen as a pretty critical for uh, for babies to happen. So, you know, if people are not getting married, same situation, they're not going to have babies. And you know, in Seoul, the birth rate is now 0.5. So, you know, in Seoul is such a, a huge part of the South Korean population, you can see they really have a sort of difficult situation. They're worried about how they're going to pay for pensions. You know, how they're going to fill the army. Um, Just the social repercussions are obviously massive. To say nothing of the limits it will put on the uh, economic growth.
0: Fiona, briefly, while we've got you on the line from Tokyo, um, we mentioned in the headlines a moment ago the fact that Fumio Kishida has become the first sitting Japanese uh, prime minister to appear before a parliamentary ethics committee. And he's trying to sort of draw a line. There's a funding scandal going on in in Japan at the moment. Um, this This is damaging to his popularity, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, this this scandal has been rumbling on for months and it is really eroding his popularity. You know, it's down at 20 odd percent, depends which which poll you look at. He's got a leadership election coming up, up in September. He has to pass this big, big budget for next year by the weekend. And if he doesn't, it won't be in place in time for the start of the financial year. So there's been a lot of horse trading over this ethics committee. It can be held behind closed doors. It doesn't have to be an open session. But the opposition parties insisted it was open. And Kishida, who's not actually implicated in the scandal himself, he is not being accused of anything. He agreed to appear, but it took a lot of persuading, you know, a lot of exasperation on all sides. And once he said he'd appear, and he did appear today, some other big names from the party who are implicated have also said they will be appearing tomorrow. So yeah, it's very, very significant. He apologised today. He talked about trying to, you know, regain the public's trust. But it's a very, very rocky time for him.
0: Fiona Wilson, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Tokyo. You're listening to The Globalist live on Monocle Radio. 8.39 in Zurich, 2.39am in Washington. Now, in the United States, leading Republicans, including the former president, Donald Trump, are trying to limit the damage done to their electoral prospects by a decision made last week by the Supreme Court in Alabama. The court ruled that embryos created by IVF in vitro fertilisation should be considered children and offered the same legal protections. Democrats have pounced on the issue, saying it's the latest demonstration of the Republicans' determination to implement Christmas. Christian nationalism in America, a right-wing doctrine supported by some of Donald Trump's most influential backers. From Washington, Simon
6: Mark sent this report. Very few people outside Alabama expected last week's news and even residents of the state were stunned by the implications of the Supreme Court ruling.
7: We want to begin tonight with shockwaves being felt in the world of reproductive health care following a bombshell IVF ruling by Alabama's Supreme
6: Court. This one-of-its-kind ruling is putting back into the national focus this question
2: of when life begins. Questions, confusion and mounting frustration tonight in Alabama its largest hospital swiftly halts all IVF procedures.
6: NBC, ABC, and CBS covering the news that the Alabama Supreme Court had declared frozen embryos, awaiting possible use by would-be families during IVF treatments, were now to enjoy the same legal protections as children. The ruling had a chilling impact on the IVF industry in the state, where doctors and healthcare workers immediately feared they could even face murder charges for discarding embryos that are either considered not viable for pregnancy or, in many cases, simply go unclaimed. As Democrats, including Vice President Kamala Harris, seized on the issue...
8: This is an issue that is about fundamental freedoms and liberty. And it is an issue about harm. Real harm that is happening to people every day in our country.
6: Republicans found themselves flat-footed. Nikki Haley, challenging Donald Trump for the party's presidential nomination, offered this initial response to the Alabama decision.
7: I mean, I think... I mean,
6: embryos to me are babies. Before walking it back just 24 hours later. Government doesn't need to get into something this sensitive. This should be between the doctor and the parents. And Donald Trump himself, sending a signal to the party that he hopes to lead in November's election, told a campaign rally in South Carolina that Alabama should think again.
5: Like the overwhelming majority of Americans,
7: including the vast Majority of Republican, conservatives, Christians, and pro life Americans. I strongly support the availability of IVF for couples who are trying to have a precious little beautiful baby.
6: I support it. But many Democrats argue the Alabama justices have offered a preview of where the Republicans will take the rest of the country if the party is successful this November. The state's Chief Justice cited Christianity and the Bible in his opinion backing the ruling, writing of the theologically based view of the sanctity of life and warning that God views the destruction of his image as an affront to himself. Critics say that is one example of Christian nationalism, a viewpoint that would threaten the constitutionally protected separation of church and state in America and a creed that is now the subject of a new documentary.
5: Christian nationalism uses Christianity as a means to an end, that end being some form of authoritarianism.
3: I'm a Christian nationalist. I have nothing to be ashamed of because that's what most Americans are. Is Christian bash also
6: Christian? Um, no, it isn't. That's part of the trailer for God and Country, a film being screened all over the United States at the moment. It is designed to serve as a warning of the threat the filmmakers say is posed by Christian nationalism.
3: It's something that's been out there for a long time and comfortably in the fringe and I think people felt like they didn't need to really respond to it or give it air because it was so fringe but it certainly has infiltrated the mainstream.
6: Dan Partland is the documentary's director. He argues that at a time when Republicans in some states are banning abortion outright, and their Speaker of the House of Representatives, Mike Johnson, believes the US should be a biblical republic, it is fair to conclude
3: the ideology is on the march. I think we don't fully know how big a threat it is, but let's look at some evidence. We did just have, you know, in the previous election, in a uh, violent insurrection at the Capitol, an effort to stop the president from being seated. We do have Mike Johnson in the, you know, second uh, in line to the presidency, guy who is overtly grasped onto these things. And now we have this question of the IVF, of maybe IVF should go away. So if you're starting to look at what evidence we have of this ideology actually succeeding in accomplishing its goals, I think there is starting to be a lot of evidence of that.
6: He argues some of the evidence can be found in Project 2025, an effort by multiple conservative groups to prepare for a second Trump administration. One of them is the Center for Renewing America, a think tank led by former Trump budget official Russ Vogt.
3: Reason I have hope is that people across the country are leading in a way that they have never done before.
6: In an interview with the Proverbs Media Group, which says it is on a mission to restore the values of faith, family, and country in America, vote said his organisation is seeking to mobilise a new generation of conservative, biblically-inspired
3: activists. They're saying, someone will follow, I have to do my job, duty is ours, results are God's. So what we try to do is to give them that confidence to know something so well that they can talk to a member of Congress or a state official who's not doing what they should and take away all of the reasons for why that politician is going to Pass the buck. That kind of talk inspires Republicans to
6: believe they can engage in epoch-making change in America if they win at the ballot box in November. It equally terrifies defenders of the country's secular traditions, including the filmmakers behind God and country.
7: God is on our
6: side! We're taking our nation back!
3: The thing that keeps me up at night is that we lose democracy. Does that seem possible? Yes.
6: For Monocle Radio, I'm Simon Marks in Washington.
0: Thank you, Simon. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. It's time now to talk all things tech with David Phelan, Monocle's technology correspondent, joining me in the studio with a stack of things to show. How are you?
2: (laughs) I'm good, thank you. How are you?
0: you. Uh, Very well. I'm very excited about the sort of the collection of different shaped blocks that you've brought in with us.
2: Yes, well, I have brought some blocks, and sadly, the thing that isn't blocky is the thing I haven't brought, um, but which is uh, way, way more beautiful than any of them, and that's um, the Fujifilm camera that's just been announced in the last few days. Fujifilm, which is 90 years old this year, a few years ago set up uh, something called the X100 series, which quickly became a photographer's favourite. And more recently with the X100V, which until last week was the current model, was adopted by social media and TikTokers. Incredibly successful. You just couldn't buy it. There was always a waiting list, no matter how many they made. It was always demand outstripping supply. And now Fujifilm has announced the uh, success of the Fujifilm X-106, uh, which looks similar, really... um Jaw-droppingly beautiful, uh, is 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 small, lightweight, very manageable. Now has a forty-megapixel sensor, and uh, is already selling like hotcakes.
0: I mean, it makes your heart beat faster when you see it, doesn't it? It, it, it the design harkens back to sort of like the late sixties, late early seventies design of, of of beautiful classic small portable cameras that stylish relatives always had and generally were taken on holidays to Italy
2: (laughs) yes exactly yes and and this should be as well it's it's so handsome and so easy to use Uh, it it has very sophisticated uh, controls if you're up for that or for the rest of us Uh, it's got very strong automatic settings so that it's got fast autofocus and in camera um, stabilisation so that anyone can use it and it delivers amazing results.
0: Um you mentioned there that it, the social media and TikTokers went bananas for it, but what you've also just described there is a very sophisticated piece of kit. So who's, sure. it, who's its audience?
2: Well, yes, that's an interesting point. I think it's for people who are not just about Instagram, but want great pictures on Instagram, not least because it does a thing called film simulation. Um, obviously, different film stocks had different sort of characters to them, and uh, Fujifilm offers you 20 different simulations to make it look as though it had been shot on a, your favourite kind of film stock. So, in other words if you want that kind of sophistication it's there but if you want something simple that takes amazing pictures it's also that camera. just
0: out of interest is anybody still using film in the way that that we used to years and years ago. That, that simulation of real film sort of makes me slightly scratch my head a touch.
2: No, I get that. Um, not re- I mean, Obviously, there are still film cameras. People do still shoot on film. Very often, pictures in Monocle are shot on film. But uh, it, it is very much a niche now. And the problem is that at each time it shrinks, film gets more and more expensive and that makes it a little bit more off-putting. But it, it, it certainly has its value and I think it, it, it hasn't gone yet.
0: Yeah, now let's means. move thank you for that now let's move to the not quite as pretty as the Fujifilm camera, uh, but pretty useful um you you have brought in a series of blocks which are effectively the batteries, aren't they?
2: Uh, yes uh, yes th- th- this is the anchor um anchor makes fantastic uh, um, uh, ways of charging your your um, phones, and this one has a, an a, a wireless charging pad, so that it that you, connects to your phone, and it also has a kickstand, so that you can um, make FaceTime calls on it, and uh, and indeed, as you a can very see, smart
0: clock it. has just appeared on David's yes. face well, on David's um, phone. You just describe what you've just done. You've taken a battery, which is a white block about what ten centimeters by five centimeters. You've propped yes. it up, yes, and now you've turned and you've and you've magnetically stuck your phone.
2: Yes, it is now charging, and the latest iPhones have a, a thing called. Standby on them so that when it's in horizontal position, uh, it turns it into a clock. So it can, that can be your alarm clock at, at night. Um, the the anchor charger has a, a helpful little screen on it so that uh, you, you can see exactly how long it's going to take to charge and, and, and what it's going to do. It is a bit chunky, but it lasts a, a long time. Unlike this, the Tau 2 from Rolling Square, which is tiny, attaches to your key ring and you pull... <laughs> That wasn't quite as hard, as it? Normally, you'd you'd have keys attached to this part of it, so when you tug it away, it comes away very easily. And it's got two um, cables uh, so that you can charge any kind of phone.
0: My my pockets and my my bag have just suddenly become figuratively very very weighed down because the anchor charging block is really big and really heavy. And then that thing you say it's tiny, but it's about what five centimeters by three. It's it's, it's big enough that if you are not wearing baggy trousers with large capacity, you're now going to be carrying a lot of stuff aren't you to make sure that you're connected and powered up
2: that is true but it's a quite a neat and effective device and um what's more it has this little clever little sticker on the back so that if you lose it with your keys attached presumably uh you can um you someone who sees it with their camera will automatically get a message to contact you
0: Wonderful. Finally, we've got about 30 seconds to talk about the Mobile World Congress trade show in Barcelona. How was it?
2: It was pretty uh, busy. The Honor um, brand came back with a vengeance with the uh, the, the latest Magic 6 Pro phone. That's this phone. It has a 180 megapixel telephoto lens, which has a 100 times capacity. And HMD that makes phones for Nokia is also going to make phones for itself, including the Barbie phone. We don't know what it looks like, but you can guess what colour it might be.
0: Blue. David <laughs> Phelan, thank you so much for joining us on Monaco Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. It's 11.53 in Dubai, and is it too early for a glass of fine wine? Well, until recently, well, officially at least, it wouldn't be time at all for wine or for anything else for that matter. But it appears that the Arabian Peninsula is fast becoming rather interested in fine wine. And to tell me more, I'm joined now by Patrick Schmidt, a master of wine and the editor-in-chief at The Drinks Business. A very good morning to you, Patrick.
8: Very good morning to you too.
0: So, when we mean interested, I mean, what do we mean by the Arabian Peninsula is interested in fine wine? Uh,
8: well, it's a good question. I think it's a, it's a growing market. I mean, interested. There's a kind of wine community that's emerging there. Um, essentially, I think the fine wine market follows, you know, sources of of, of growing sources of, of very rich individuals, um, and cities like Dubai are, are boom are boom places. And where you have, you know, booming wealthy people, uh, you have a good restaurant scene, you have tourism, um, fine wine generally follows that and it's, it's a sign of status.
0: And what are we seeing in, in terms of the, you know, the interest? Of, are we seeing uh, more, more commerce, more dealers? Uh, and indeed, is there any drinking being done?
8: Yeah, it, well of course it's a very tightly regulated market there' are essentially two people that can handle uh, two businesses that can handle wine in, in, in Dubai um so it's very very tightly regulated you can only really consume in restaurants uh, western focused places uh, fine hotels so it's not you can't be seen to be you're not meant to be seen to be drunk um, and you can't drink in, in, in the street and, and the Muslim population uh also um well sharia law um forbids uh, the consumption of alcohol but actually it's fairly relaxed from what i hear in dubai um and you have an enormous expat uh community there. i think about you know 75 to 80 percent of of the three 3.3 3 million population of a city like dubai are, are, are foreigners um so so there's 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 a big market there of people who are, it's except, essentially a tax haven for the very rich And then you have a very rich, um, um, booming tourism industry as well. And Uh, they want to consume the finest wines.
0: Indeed. So tell us a little bit about the the kinds of wines that are making their way out to the Arabian Peninsula. I mean, are we sort of happily sitting, drinking a glass of Chateau Petrus in the desert nowadays?
8: (laughs) I love that idea. I mean, there's not much of it to go around, but, but quite possibly. I think the very finest and most famous labels are being consumed there by the very rich. Um, And I think that's because people are out there having fun, but also they want to be seen to be having fun. They want to show off their wealth. And um, a brilliant and extremely pleasurable way to do that is to drink a very fine wine like Petrus. Um, And it is the the really, truly famous label. So it'll be the first growths of Bordeaux, the likes of Chateau Mouton, Rothschild or Lafitte. Uh, You mentioned Petrus as well. Great icon of Bordeaux, too. Uh, And then the famous wines of Burgundy, like Domaine de la Romani Conti, most expensive wine in the world. And then, of course, the famous champagne brands, too, will be consumed out there. Um, It's it's a boom place. It's a party town. Uh, People are showing off and having fun. And unlike what it's like maybe in the UK, where people are feeling the pinch, um, there's still plenty of money circulating and people are enjoying themselves, certainly in places like Dubai.
0: You Uh, mentioned... you mentioned yes, the, you mentioned the scarcity of of these wonderful vintages and these wonderful producers. Um, just explain to us what that does to the market when you suddenly have a, a fresh, wealthy, curious market springing up.
8: It's a really good question. I mean, actually, it's 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 a brilliant development for the fine wine market because traditional markets and consumers of fine wine have been actually in decline. There's a lot of fine wine stock been knocking around um after a post-pandemic boom things really quietened down and and actually declined last year so the fine wine market is looking for pockets of growth places like south korea um, and places like uh, dubai and and, and other parts of the middle east so this is a good thing but the thing is these top wines are made in very very small quantities Um, so there is a little that has to go a long way but because it's so expensive it kind of regulates where it goes only the very rich can afford these wines
0: um, how are the wine? How is the wine industry ad- adapting to this new market? I mean, is it opening up um, memberships, or, or or indeed educating people about the kinds of wines that are landing on their tables? Because it would be a shame if you didn't know a little bit about what you were drinking.
8: Yeah, well, I mean, you can get so much off the internet these days. Um, but you're right. I mean, there's a wine club, a private members wine club called Sixty Seven Pall Mall, um, named after its the address where it first opened up in London. And uh, that's opened up globally, and that's a really good place for helping to develop the culture of fine wine, because it builds a kind of community of wine lovers, and they can share bottles, and they do lots of educational events. And they've got—they're going to open one in Hong Kong. They've got one in Singapore. They're opening one in Melbourne. They've got one in Bordeaux. Um, and there's a thought that they might open one in Dubai. But essentially, you know, the international rich travel extensively and they'll probably be going to these, these meccas clubs for fine wine and other cities and then taking back their knowledge. But essentially, it's a, it's a fairly small pool of famous labels that people will probably be consuming um, because they're well known as, as being expensive and being fine. Um, and then there's ratings for wine as well, so you can follow the ratings.
0: Patrick Schmidt thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio and that's all the time we have for today's programme the warmest of thanks to all my guests and thanks to to our producers Vincent McAvinnie Chris Chermak and Laura Kramer our researchers Neema Ekwa and our studio manager Tamsin Howard after the headlines there's more music on the way the briefing is live at midday here in London the Globalist is back at tomorrow but for me Emma Nelson goodbye thank you very much for listening